This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 8, Episode 8. BBC Trending, Social Media Watchdog. An interview with editor Mike Wendling. What is social media? It's a collection of internet-based applications like text, post, comments, photos, videos, and data, which is generated online. The purpose of social media is to build a brand with a broad appeal. Tech giants like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, LinkedIn, are social media household names with billions of followers across the world. In addition to helping us connect with friends, family, services, and businesses, social media has become a primary source of news 24-7. But because of the decentralized, non-edited, non-curated nature of the Internet, the source, the honesty, and reliability of Internet-based news is often open to question. Sometimes it's reliable, other times it's not. With us today to make sense of the Wild West world of social media is Mike Wendling, editor of the show BBC Trending. Mike is a journalist and an author. He's also editor of BBC Trending, which is a BBC program about the internet. It reports on what is being shared on the internet and social media, and it asks why it matters. The British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, is a public broadcasting service based in London and spanning a host of mass media businesses. It was founded in 1922 and has become a leading global broadcasting brand and an acknowledged, reliable source of news. In 1932, the BBC World Service, a shortwave radio service, was created to provide English-language radio programs to the people of the British Empire and beyond. Today, it broadcasts programming and news in more than 40 languages. BBC Trending bridges the cultural divide between traditional journalism and internet-based news and tracks social media trends. The rise of social media news and tens of millions of people get their news from social media sources, has given rise to unreliable and often false news narratives known as fake news, misinformation, or disinformation. In the past, such stories were known as propaganda, particularly during World War II and the Cold War. That's why media literacy is so important today as we move away from traditional, edited, curated news sources. Social media has given rise to conspiracy theories, half-truths, falsehoods, deepfake video manipulation, to mention a few such social media phenomena. There are seven recognized canons of journalism which are widely accepted, and they are responsibility, freedom of the press, independence, 
sincerity, truthfulness, accuracy, impartiality, fair play, and decency. Does social media play by those rules? Joining us today from his home in London is Mike Wendling. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me. Very good. Listen, Mike, um, let's take a few moments at the outset and please tell us about your career as a journalist. Yeah, sure. Well, I, as you might be able to tell, I am not British, um, but I grew up in upstate New York. Um, I began um, working as a journalist for the Associated Press in Cleveland, Ohio. And I, I was always interested in radio, AP radio news. I was an intern at National Public Radio in Washington uh, many years ago. Um, if, I guess fate and uh, my now wife brought me to Britain, uh, where about 15 years ago, I started working for the BBC. I worked, even though I've worked for, uh, you know, pretty big news organizations, I've always felt in a way until uh, quite recently that I've been interested in, in a bit of, I guess, niche stuff, um, the, the world of sort of disinformation, conspiracy theories and urban legends and fake news was not so um, well-known or well-traveled until a few years ago. Now it seems pretty remarkable and maybe even, you know, uh, <laughs> central to the, to a newsroom's operation. But what w- what really sort of got me going was the the possibilities of uh, computer-based social networking in its broadest sense. So I did a number of programs and series about the power of technology, the power of social media, you know, the sort of origins of this whole sort of movement. So was that the genesis of uh, BBC Trending? Well, you know, I can't take credit for actually inventing BBC Trending. My um, good colleague and friend, Mukul Devachand, was the one who did that. Uh, Mukul's uh, kind of a sort of a pioneer in the sort of tech world in in the BBC. I was I was around um, at the beginning, for sure. The idea behind it was to... I guess, um, you know, if, if, you, if you cast your mind back to 2013, 2014, uh, you had color revolutions, you had the Arab Spring, all this stuff was happening. And you could easily see that social media, uh, the Twitters and the Facebooks of the world were against. They were aware this stuff was happening. There was something going on here. Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't say sort of all, but, but many mainstream news organizations didn't really sort of have a handle on how this stuff was actually sort of playing out online. And certainly the BBC, it's quite a conservative in small C uh, conservative organization. You know, we, we didn't have a systematic way of uh, covering some of this stuff or understanding of it. So that was the purpose of trending in the beginning. Take a look at the online world and uh, take a look at the politics and culture there and do some serious reporting on it. Uh-huh. Well, I'm a regular listener, of course, to the uh, to BBC Trending. You and I have spoken on occasion before. I'm also a big fan of the uh, BBC World Service. In fact, I just did a blog post on uh, the BBC World Service. First started listening to, to the World Service when I was stationed in Quito, Ecuador in the late 1970s. And through the crackle and the hiss and the uh, all that noise, I would uh, try to find the BBC World Service, and I would sit there for hours listening to uh, to the BBC World Service. So I still listen to 
BBC Trending on the World Service. And at the end of the program, I know you'll give the coordinates to our listeners so that they can enjoy the program also. But why don't we begin at the, why don't we begin by talking about the most recent series of programs that you've done on BBC Trending, which will really illustrate the kind of work that you do on the, that you do on BBC Trending. Yeah, so we've just finished a, a special series. Most of our uh, uh, documentaries are a single issue or sometimes multiple parts, but this was an eight-part series that we did. Uh, it's called The Anti-Vax Files, if you want to search for it. We quickly realized near the end of last year that with news of uh, you know successful vaccine trials, that uh, and vaccines were becoming, you know, we, we knew that there would be sort of safe and effective vaccines would be offered to the public, you know, now, right? We're, we're sort of getting the, these now uh, in various countries around the world. It, it hasn't been even by any means. Uh, when you're broadcasting to the world, you've got to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, but we saw a parallel movement. That parallel movement was a committed group of anti-vaccine activists, hardcore, unshaken in their belief that vaccines are evil and bad and damaging. The curious thing is that scientists have been telling us since the beginning of the pandemic that only vaccines will really get us out of it. And that would seem to be, that would seem to make the the average person think that you know, vaccines are probably something that we should consider. However, online, on social media, anti-vaccine content was becoming more and more popular. It's a kind of a paradox, and it's a paradox that we wanted to sort of get into the bottom of in various countries around the world. So that's what we set out as our mission to try and do. We reported on um, the people sort of driving this and the people who were affected by this, because you know, that's that's just as important than sort of fingering the bad guys is sort of seeing the real world harm of, of this kind of stuff. Uh, we reported from Brazil, South Africa, Germany, India, uh, and of course, the UK and the US. Mm-hmm. Now, who were the who were the mass? <clears throat> who were the leaders of this this global phenomenon? First of all, I'm very impressed that uh, once again, the global reach of the BBC is apparent in, in the the roster of the countries that you just mentioned there that you covered from Brazil, South Africa, the United States, so on and so forth. But but tell us who who the the leadership was here. And specifically, did Robert F. Kennedy Jr. play a role in this? Because he's been a big anti-vaxxer long before the the advent of COVID. He was an anti-vaxxer with regard to the autism vaccination, the link between autism and vaccinations. Was he a leader in this, uh, in the COVID vax? Yeah. And so he's definitely, and his, and his foundation, definitely one of the driving factors. What's interesting about this movement is that there's, you know, there, there are leaders. He's probably one of the most recognizable names. Andrew Wakefield, who's a a, a former doctor, he was removed from the general medical uh, register here in the UK who uh, you know came out with that initial paper some 20 years ago now that uh, purported to have a link between the MMR vaccine and 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 autism which you know it has been thoroughly debunked in the in the decades since and the people around him um, you know those sort of well known there's 
the, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, uh, which is a think tank, came out with a, a report recently that identified 12 people who spread the most viral uh, uh, anti-vax content. And, and they're sort of big super spreaders of this kind of stuff. But, you know, in, in drilling down into it, actually, we find that it, 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 it's different from, you know, legitimate politics and um, normal ways of thinking, because actually a lot of the stuff is is driven by uh, people on a local level. They may be many influencers in their own country, in their own languages. They may be, in the case of um, South Africa, there actually might not even be in the country. Uh, mm. We found a lot of imported stuff that was coming from Europe and the, and the U.S. targeting communities in, in, in South Africa specifically. So it's a lot more diffuse. It's a lot more uh, it's a lot more of a mix of people who are deliberately trying to uh, spread this for their own sort of purposes, whether that might be clout or influence or money to sort of, you know, sell uh, vitamin pills or this kind of thing. But then also just normal people who think, you know what, sometimes I'm going to pass this stuff on just in case it's true, or I'm very anxious about this. I'm not sure about it. I'm going to pass on some some information, or I'm going to start a page that collects supposed stories of vaccine harm. We've seen a lot of these crop up recently. So you know, it's a it's a great big mix. And what's what, what we really found interesting was how that played out in, like I say, in in various countries. You you noted the sort of you know world scope that we have. Well, we really couldn't do it without our colleagues really pitching in, you know, across the world and across different languages and, you know, really sort of getting to the bottom of how some of this stuff does play out in different places. Now tell me, what were the, what were the top two or three arguments against the vaccine? And were those, so, were those arguments the same in the United States and the UK and Brazil, South Africa? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, let me let me put it like this: we we try to make a distinction, right? Because you know, people what we don't really want to discourage is people asking questions. You know, science isn't evolving. Um, science, uh, <laughs> vaccine science is, is is always evolving. We know more. We know much more about COVID, the virus, than we do a year ago. So, you know, it's important that people ask questions and are able to ask questions and are able to have their uh, their their concerns addressed, uh, even if we can't come to sort of conclusive answers. You know, so some vaccines that we know of have had extremely rare cases of blood clots potentially tied to them, right? Mm -hmm. So there's been cases. Now, there's investigations going on as to whether those blood clots are actually a result of the vaccines and what exactly is going on here and how common they are. All indications are they're very rare. But we're not really talking about that when we're talking about the the hardcore anti-vax lobby. They will use that, of course, as you know, sort of a, a st stimulus for their uh, argument. But but really, we uh, are we talk about people who say that the vaccine will contain a microchip. Oh yes, that will track you. <clears throat> That's a hugely popular, hugely popular. Uh, rumor that's out there completely uh, untrue. There are various sort of uh, technologies out there where this could be possible. None of them are being used in coronavirus vaccines um, that we have presently. The the idea that vaccines, you know, kill millions of people or that they're untested. These are sort of things that, that have we heard again and again and again. 
people uh, do have legitimate questions about the speed of this whole thing. But, you know, partially the, the, the issue with the speed here is that a phenomenal amount of money, because it's so important to get on top of this disease, has been thrown at these things. In some ways, it's sort of human ingenuity and the possibility of humankind coming together and sort of tackling this problem that has actually been identified by some of these people as a sinister detail of the whole thing, which is really kind of fascinating. But it's, yeah, it's those kinds of things. Like, you know, there'll be, these microchips will track you, that um, they will be used to enslave people, that millions of people will die. These are the more pernicious rumors that are out there. And the, 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 the thing about, you know, disinformation and misinformation is you don't really sort of need to get 100% hit rate here. What you can do is you sort of chip away at people's beliefs. So it's like, you know, you, they may not believe the most outlandish stuff, but then if you if they're reading this stuff all the time, then maybe they are susceptible to something that is a little bit less uh, crazy sounding. Oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, the vaccine will not protect you uh, in enough um, because we know that sometimes people get uh, the disease after they get vaccinated. So then that plays on people's minds and that increases the overall level of hesitancy, makes people less willing to get vaccines. And uh, that's a that's a public health issue. That's a public health problem. Now, M Mike, another question for you: Are the um, are the anti-vaxxers part of? Do they have? Do they subscribe to other conspiracy theories, or are they just dedicated to the anti-vax movement? Because yeah, so it's they they definitely there's definitely an overlap. I mean, in general, um, the the academics who study this kind of stuff. Um, do say that, you know, the people who believe in conspiracy theories, people who believe in one conspiracy theory, do also have the propensity to believe in other conspiracy theories. Now, as far as the ones that specifically we find most common amongst anti-vaxxers, well, there's definitely an overlap between this and, and QAnon. So mm. we went to a, an anti-mask, anti-lockdown rally in London a couple of weeks ago, and we saw a lot of QAnon posters. There's, I suppose, it, I suppose I could try to explain this by saying QAnon is obviously a, a pro-Donald Trump conspiracy theory that yes. says that Democrats uh, drink blood and traffic children. It is sort of imported from from the United States. It ties into the idea that there is sort of a a secret establishment. But then again, a lot of conspiracy theories do. I feel like maybe it's there's just an overlapping political base, perhaps in the United States and uh, amongst these two groups, and that has sort of spilled over into sort of the fringes of Britain's anti-vax movement. And to, to be honest, anti-vax movements, we've seen this in Germany and France, a lot of other countries do oddly have this sort of QAnon crossover. You know, it's interesting. You've done a number of shows on QAnon. Why don't we move on to talk about QAnon and the 2020 election campaign. Incidentally, you didn't mention that you've, uh, in the past, you've covered some of the political conventions here in the United States in years past. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, I, I was um, part of our team in Washington for the 2016 election and did a lot of reporting in 2016 from from the U.S. Uh, quite, a, quite a different sort of and uh, strange 
campaign in 2020, the, you know, the, I guess what we, what we really saw, which really sort of culminated in the uh, assault on the Capitol was a, I guess the fruition of a, essentially like a conspiratorial campaign, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, it's been argued that Donald Trump basically won. Uh, in in 2016, the the primary and the election by rallying a base that, you know, was not only aggrieved but had a conspiratorial mindset. You know, mm-hmm. he came to political prominence by saying that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. That was a complete right out out right out and out conspiracy theory. So you know, it, we have if you if you sort of trace the people who were there there were a lot of obviously there were a lot of QAnon people there there were a lot of militia people there there were a lot of people who signed up to another conspiracy theory which was that there was a mass conspiracy to steal the election stuff ballot boxes manipulate votes manipulate electronic uh, machines nobody's found any evidence of this happening on a, on a large scale it's simply unproven and not true, mm-hmm. but it can result in some really uh, horrific events. Now, Mike, what is it, what's peculiar about social media, which has made it such a fertile field for spawning conspiracy theories? Is there something peculiar about social media that just lends itself to propagating conspiracy theories? Because we seem to, with the advent of QAnon and QAnon's Pizzagate conspiracy and all of its other conspiracies, and then, of course, to say nothing of Alex Jones and Infowars and Sandy Hook and that conspiracy theory, what is it about social media which has just spawned this profusion of conspiracy theories. Well, yeah, you know, and let me give you another one to your list, Jim. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea that the world is flat. Yes. It's very interesting. This, this, this is very, so we did a, a program on this, and essentially the people who run the Flat Earth Society uh, run a convention every year, uh-huh. and they saw their numbers very, very, you know, small. You know, a couple, a couple of dozen people might believe that the, uh, that the Earth is flat. Um, over the, you know, over the years. And then suddenly a few years ago, there's an explosion and suddenly hundreds of people are coming to their conference and they're getting thousands of emails. And what explains that? And they can explain it in one word. It's YouTube. Now, I don't want to sort of pick on YouTube. Other social medias are just as viral and um, you can find just as much or, uh, you know, even more type of conspiracy thinking on some of these. But you know, it it definitely has driven something like that. That it's you know that that is kind of like an old-fashioned conspiracy theory. It's like Area 51 or the moon landing. You know, things. If you're if your crazy uncle believes in that kind of thing, it probably doesn't you know make them storm the Capitol or run around the supermarket without any mask, shouting <laughs> at people who are vaccinated to get away from them. You know, that right. that's sort of deranged. You know, it, it's it's a little bit sort of quirky in the way that conspiracy theories. You know, almost universally, were many of them that many of the most popular ones, anyway. So, you know, what what is it? I guess back to your question, which I've I've been dancing around a bit. You know, authority is diffuse. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And so people can set themselves up as authority. And this is exactly what we saw during, during COVID and during the pandemic. Uh, people saying, you know, actually, don't listen to that doctor. I'm a doctor. Some of these people have qualifications. You know, some of these people have done research in the past. Some of these people, you know, are experts in their field. And that doesn't prevent them from from spreading bad information about uh, a virus or a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, there's that, you know, in some ways it's sort of, you know, people are in bubbles where if they want to believe something, they 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 can find stuff to reinforce their belief. And of course, social media algorithms in generally have started with a point of, of serving up more and more of what you already like and know and believe and thus pushing you into more extreme versions of belief. The social media companies, I would say, in the interests of balance, uh, say that they're sorting out all these problems. But, you know, again and again, we've seen the big social media companies be reactive to this kind of stuff rather than proactive. Mm -hmm. They have, you know, over the course of the past year, cracked down on COVID and vaccine disinformation and QAnon hashtags and, and all of this stuff. It has always come well after these things become mass phenomenon. Now, let's move on to the subject of censorship, because we saw censorship raise its head against President Trump on his Twitter account, his Facebook account. And we even had uh, French President Macron, German Chancellor Merkel, who seemed to rally to Trump's defense, arguing against censorship by Twitter and Facebook. So where where is that line drawn between, you know, craziness of conspiracy theories and actually shutting down someone's account so they can't say anything? Where 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 do you draw the line? Well, you know, the shutting things down is actually a pretty blunt tool, you know, and there are other tools that social media companies have. They can restrict people from posting for a limited amount of time. And in fact, Facebook's oversight board in their ruling about Donald Trump's account said that, yeah, perhaps that uh, Facebook shouldn't have sort of given him a, a an indefinite ban. Uh, go back and think about it, Facebook. Uh, you have six months to do so. There, there are other, there are other things to do. But in that particular case, you know, Facebook was was acting in accordance with news events. I guess this is back to the point that I was making about them being reactive. A lot of the times they do, you know, they do react to news events. If there's no uh, political pressure or PR pressure, they there are they are slower to act. It's just kind of just kind of the, the, the truth. What, what, what happens here is that it sort of uh, it, it does get a bit arbitrary. And you know what's it, in some ways I don't you know I don't sort of want to get too sympathetic because then I wouldn't sort of be you know my job is sort of questioning these of people. Course, but you, you do have to sort of feel for a company that is is trying to roll out its product in many different countries around the world, many different legal systems. Hard to say that one size fits all. Now, speaking of, now, one, speaking of one size fits all, of course, here in the United States, and you're an American, a First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees our right to free speech as well as free assembly and freedom of religion, etc., but focused on the free speech piece of it. And Americans tend to take that, Americans t- tend to take 
our written constitution very literally, and we we often end up in a legalistic straitjacket versus European common sense and practical approaches to free speech. Is there is this free speech issue of the First Amendment, is that more of an American thing, or is it also the case in Britain and other markets where you operate with the BBC? Well, let me let me put in sort of a different example here. So take 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 Germany, right? I mean, countries have free speech laws, but of course, you know, as Americans, we cherish our free speech, and you know, who's to say that that's that's not a good thing? Uh, you know, we, we've many many much much political progress has been made completely as a result of free speech. We take different views than other societies and other societies that are not sort of hugely different from um, the US or, or the UK. So if you if you take Germany, for instance, now, in America, the, the uh, idea of uh, Nazis, you know, uh, wearing armbands and, and walking around and having a, a, a bit of a protest in the street would not be to, to, you know, the vast majority of people's taste. But neither would it be to shut that down and arrest those people. Now, in Germany, you can't display Nazi symbols. You know, broadly, the, the, the law bans them. Mm-hmm. And so that would be against the law. Now, you know, who's to say that, you know, Germany is not taking the right approach? I think we could all sort of say, you know, well, there's a specific history in Germany. And, you know, if the majority of Germans support this particular law, then who's anybody else to sort of say that that can't sort of they can't have that law? So, you know, culturally, it's very specific there. Now, interestingly, Germany also has a very sort of strict hate speech law for for internet companies that are that are for big social media companies there's a, a minimum number of users that mm. um I, I forget what it's called i forget what the number is um but it's in the millions it's called the nets dg law it throws up very interesting things number one the social media companies have devoted a lot of resources to moderating in german uh you know and and perhaps if in some other countries they had similar sort of resources pushed by a law a legal framework that has wide acceptance not universal acceptance we talked to comics who were caught up in the net stage dg law and you know certainly weren't sort of spreading hate speech but this sort of broad social norm can sort of push the needle a bit on social media regulation now in other countries where there's not as much you know in other languages where there's not as much resources devoted to this kind of uh, kind of stuff we've seen you know really terrible stuff happen in mm-hmm. you know in, in Myanmar for instance so basically it, the BBC trending programs like for instance in this eight episode series on the anti-vaxxers you present the case of the anti-vaxxers and then essentially you debunk their arguments is that a fair way of uh, characterizing it Mike well you know we always we always try to the best antidote for bad information is good information right so we do encounter in the series we do encounter people giving this sort of rubbish out we try to counter it with accurate science or point out the logical flaws in this kind of stuff and again it's not about shouting at people it's not about telling them that they're wrong it's simply about pointing out that people some people who have big movements online and big followings online are, are potentially spreading 
bunk to the people who are listening to them and and why you shouldn't listen to them. You know, but we we tried to sort of also focus on the people who are getting sucked up in this stuff. One of the Mm -hmm. most affecting programs in the series is an interview with a woman who used to believe in conspiracy theories and and, and really got quite sort of, you know, into them before realizing that they could potentially sort of damage her her health if she believes all of this stuff. And, and, and what we're seeing now is that, you know, often there's people coming to me and my reporters and they're saying, you know, I, I need some help because my a family member or my friend is getting, getting too deep into these conspiracy theories and it's alienating them from the rest of the family. It's a really sort of sad stories. You know, the other thing is we we try to champion the people who are, despite the odds, trying to do good and spread good information and sometimes even take it directly to the most viral anti-vaxxers themselves and mm-hmm. challenge them online, which uh, in some instances can be quite brave because of all the abuse and trolling that you can peep on uh, on yourself if you you try and sort of confront these people. Now, do they come after you and the show, the anti-vaxxers, uh, either online or through call-in programs or that sort of thing? Yeah, so uh, that is definitely a uh, occupational hazard. hazard yeah. It's been quite, yeah, so our reporting has definitely been in, in the crosshairs of a lot of people who uh, who who believe in these things or are part of sort of larger movements where these things are our mainstream areas of thought. You know, so we've done a lot about anti-vaccine, and I mentioned this sort of QAnon movement, and reporting on this kind of stuff always comes with that sort of risk that is, let me just put it this way, without sort of telling every, saying about everything that we have to do, but it takes a lot of management Mm -hmm. to, you know, we, we put a lot of effort into it keep people safe. Now, with the uh, on the on the subject of censorship, there was talk and in fact a movement to move to alternate social media platforms to escape what was thought to be big tech censorship by Facebook and deplatforming by Twitter. And and apparently there are, there's now a blockchain social media alternative. And the blockchain social media alternative offers decentralized, encrypted, no moderation on their platforms. There's a a new one uh, similar to Twitter called Panquake. There's There's a YouTube alternative called Odyssey, which also is blockchain. And apparently, once you actually use a blockchain social media, once the information is there, it's there forever. It cannot be recalled. It cannot be deleted, number one. And number two, I guess from to the extent that it's decentralized as opposed to one central server controlled by Facebook or Twitter, it's this blockchain social media is decentralized with a host of different uh, servers. So nobody can ever deplatform you. Have you have you done any any studies on that? Are you seeing a movement towards those kind of uh, social media platforms? Yeah, there's certainly. I mean, there's and there's been a number of sort of clones um, that aren't sort of as technically sophisticated as the ones you sort of outline. You know, that sort of replicate the functions of social media. Uh, you know, th- uh, th- uh, there's one that was linked. You know, to 
there, there have been ones that have been linked to, to shootings and terror attacks. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting is that, yeah, these pla- these people, th- these pl- places give people the ability to sort of say what they want if they've been kicked off of Facebook. But they don't really have a huge audience, you know, mm-hmm. and their audience is not that influential because it tends to be a bit of an echo chamber. You know, the the, the big giants, Facebook uh, and, and YouTube and Twitter in particular are, are are sort of special places that probably we should think of in a, in a in a special way when it comes to sort of questions of censorship because they, you know, because because they they give people the ability to talk to all sorts of other people. A lot of the alt tech type platforms, you're only talking to yourself, and that also you know that's sort of their challenge business wise because it's not quite as fun you know if somebody's on twitter and they are you know there's sort of a, a opinions bouncing around and you know that becomes a, a space where sort of things are engaging and and interesting it's a little bit less so if you're only getting people who agree uh, you know they, they can often turn into places that are not only one note but turn more extreme that and that limits their popularity as well because you know the average person stumbling upon these things and perhaps you know sees a news report about them might type it in the browser will be turned off pretty quick Mm -hmm. when i wrote my book about 4chan i did sort of try to get into this in some detail it's not something for the faint-hearted you, you you don't sort of you know it's not sort of like ooh an edgy version of facebook there's the most vile stuff on there. It comes up right away. If you're not sort of into that subculture, you're probably not going to spend a lot of time on those kinds of websites. And a lot of these old tech websites look similar after after a while and after they sort of get an influx of extreme users. Mm-hmm. Now, Mike, now that the now that the eight episode series on anti-vaxxers is behind you, what other programs are going to be coming down the road for 2021 so my listeners can make sure that they have their coordinates ready to roll and to tune into BBC Trending. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I mean, look, I will say that a big area of focus is climate disinformation. We are going to be looking into that quite a lot in the next year as we come up to COP um, in November. That is really fascinating slightly underreported i think there's been some good reporting on it but there's a sort of a long sort of history of combination of activists governments businesses uh, and sort of you know pr companies that have all been involved in that space so that should be interesting mm-hmm. you know the other thing that we're looking at is you know in uh, in many countries vaccinations rates are 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 very high vaccination rollouts are very successful certainly in the uk been ahead of schedule Mm -hmm. these are all sort of good signs the pandemic in its crisis mode appears to be sort of coming to the end of that sort of beginning crisis mode right Mm -hmm. now what's interesting for us is is to see that what the anti-vaxxers move on to next you know if as we expect a huge proportion of uh, people in britain and the u.s will you know want these vaccines will take them in a sense they they've lost the fight yes. will they you know try to make sure that people in india or south africa aren't vaccinated 
uh, unlike, you know, will they move on to a new sort of, you know, conspiracy theory or a new sort of set of conspiracy theories? We're watching that and we're watching this, how that develops. It's really interesting. One of the things that we're looking at is how, you know, there's there's almost sort of a, a hardcore culture or counterculture, you might call it. It's more of an anti-culture than a counterculture mm-hmm. springing up around the idea of anti-masks, anti-lockdowns anti-vaccines here in Britain. I mean, a lot of people are more than happy to sort of bend the rules or have been more than happy to sort of bend or break the rules. But these people are sort of, you know, putting it front and center that they are anti all this stuff. And they're they're sort of forming uh, communities, dating sites, festivals, all sort of aimed at this market. (laughs) Dating sites, indeed. Dating sites... There are dating sites that have been created. If you want to meet somebody who has not been vaccinated, oh my goodness! Wow, you know, I, I, just as a, as a thought, have you have you contacted Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon conspiracy theorist, member of Congress from the state of Georgia? I mean, she it would be it would be fantastic to have you interview her. I mean, she's a duly elected member of the U.S. Congress from the state of Georgia, the Republican Party. And I've seen her interviewed on a host of different... Uh, is that something uh, we can look forward to, a conversation with Well, Marjorie? possibly. Possibly. I would, I would, yes, I would relish the chance for me or one of my reporters to, to interview her. I, Certainly. Absolutely. Well, Mike, in the remaining uh, few minutes left of our podcast today, could you share with our listeners the coordinates for BBC Trending, because I want to make absolutely sure that our listeners have an opportunity to tune in, whether it's streaming or on Sirius Radio through the World Service. Could you please share those coordinates, the times, and where to find you? Sure, sure. So while the times are a little bit tricky, simply because it's a check local listings, as they used to say, scenario, we're on a lot of public radio stations in the US and a lot of other radio stations around the world. uh, Now, uh, I, I would encourage you, you can search for BBC Trending wherever you get your podcasts from. We have a podcast. All of our episodes are available on there. So, you know, the Anti-Vax Files is available now to download. Previous um, episodes, um, our whole back catalog is on there, hundreds of episodes. And of course, you can subscribe and you'll never miss another episode. So uh, you can search for that where you get your podcast from. You can search for BBC Trending on the BBC World Service site. We'll take you right to where you can stream and download our content. And we also write for the BBC News website, so our programs are turned into text stories and we do original text reporting when we're not on air. And all that can be found bbc.com slash trending. Well, there you have it, listeners. I want to thank our guest today, editor Mike Wendling, for a very thorough and wide-ranging discussion of conspiracy theories and, most importantly, the, the area of social media and why media literacy is so important and the fact that this program BBC Trending is playing such a uh, a critical and proactive role in making sure that the news consumer is asking the hard questions about the information that you're getting on the inform- on the on the internet uh, so that you're not being bamboozled by conspiracy theories. So once again, Mike, thank you so much for coming on our show. 
And I'll look forward to having you back in a few months' time because uh, it seems to me that the world of social media is the gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. (laughs) And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, and subscribe to the podcast. By subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to the 155 previous episodes, peruse my book, send me an email, or leave me a comment. And please make sure to read my blog, which also appears on the website. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.